0: If you haven't done a loan in about a year and a half, what you know is different. Everything in the world is different.
1: Welcome to Financial Sobriety. You might think this is a podcast about money, traditional money. Oh, but you'd be wrong if that's what you were thinking. This is a completely different conversation. This is a conversation that's going to completely challenge everything you think you know about money in life. You know, there are three relationships that can get pretty complicated. That relationship we have with money, that relationship we have with people, and that oh-so-tricky relationship we have with ourselves. And let me tell you, those three relationships, they're pretty tied together closely. And when one of those relationships falls out of whack, it might have an effect on the others. Now, if you're like most people I've met, and you struggle a little bit in one of those relationships, then you are absolutely in the right place. My name is Matthew Grishman. I'm the co-owner of Gebhardt Group. We're a private wealth management firm headquartered right here in Northern California. I'm joined by my business partner, Jim Gebhardt, who got this whole party started when he opened the doors of our firm back in May of 2005. Now, Jim and I are on a pretty big mission here. We created this podcast because we want to have some impact. We're here to help one million families become more intentional with their money and with the relationship they have with the person looking back at them in the mirror. Episode 31, Finance February. Finance February. What a great time we had with John last episode. That was awesome. I've made so many mistakes buying cars over the years. He really opened my eyes up to just things to consider I never would have considered before. That was awesome having him here.
2: It it is, and guys like that are just a huge resource, right? Because it's just this black box. Buying a car is like a total mystery, or leasing, mystery. A, car. Or leasing, leasing a, car. a car, buying a car, financing a car, used car, new car, new car. Uh, it's just it's just so mysterious and uncomfortable. And I just I appreciated how he had a very plain, simple approach to it. Now we're going to shift this episode in finance February, so it's not love month. But we're going to shift into what is, for most people, they're the largest financial transaction of their life.
1: Well, what I was going to say is, you know what transaction is actually bigger, even bigger than buying a car. Having a kid? Yeah, that's a pretty big transaction. But I don't oh. think we're going to cover that in February. It's love month, though, isn't it? Oh, no, it's finance month. I see. Got it. Finance February. So what's that purchase that's even bigger than purchasing a car? Probably the largest. The gol- my golf cart? Uh, that could be third on the list, but the largest purchase most people will ever make in their lives. This is when you got to cue the music. Hey, Bob, what did they win? Purchasing a, new home. A, house. a house, a new home. Holy cow. One of my favorite stories ever is the story you tell about what it was like in 2008 to own two homes at the same time. And I know it was an uncomfortable time for you, and I'm sorry to take pleasure out of such an uncomfortable time for you, brother. But I take some pleasure out of know- knowing where you are now and what was learned from that time. Tell me again, please. Pretty please. Tell the story again.
2: Well, we got to rewind the tape a little bit, right? So, you know, newlywed couple, we buy our first house. We stretch, stretch, stretch. My oldest
1: brother, Who are you talking uh, about? Scott. Who are you talking about? You and Beth? Beth and I. Yes. Oh,
2: Okay. So as newlyweds, my oldest brother had recommended that we stretch and buy the best location we can because real estate's all about location, 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 right? Wait, why would he do? Why? Why? What was the, why did he think it would make sense for you to stretch? Well, the thought process is you are going to make more money. So you're going to be more
1: financially successful a few years down the road. So it's okay to be house poor in the beginning. Was he he saying that because he thought you were going to make more money or was he saying that more as a, as a motivator to get you to make more money.
2: Mostly it was out of his experience, to be honest. He had bought and sold about 12 houses at this point in his life. And we stretched, we bought our first house, total fixer-upper. A few years later, God bless California real estate, we, we made a small fortune. And we talk a lot about this with our clients in terms of blind spots. Well, one of the blind spots that came out of that was, well, Gosh, I mean, we were so successful at it. We should be able to do that again. So that's what we attempted. We bought another fixer upper at a higher price point. And it well, was a you
1: still on the existing fixer upper.
2: No, no, just slow the roll. I'll get there. I'll, okay. I'll get there. And this fixer upper, we were gonna tear it down and build a whole new house. Whole new house. Went through with the architects, went through with the city, all the stuff, right? And I get this intuitive hit in early 2006. I'm like, you know what? We're going to end up with this beautiful monument to ourselves. Extraordinary amounts of debt, a young business, two little kids, a lot of debt, if I didn't say that already, and a a beautiful house on an okay lot. We're not going to do
1: this. Did you consider the amount of debt that you would be taking on? Slightly. So
2: I kind of... Burst Beth's bubble and was like, "We're not doing this. We're not doing this." In hindsight, that was a very good decision. Did you wind up on the couch? We mm, occasionally, but that so was how, just so that was just to be able to move move the buckets around from uh, the leaky roof. I, I needed to make sure they didn't fill up in the middle of the night, given the uh, uh, the wet winter that that was. So we decided to go shopping for a different house, a house in a better location. A house where we would stretch a little and maybe it didn't need quite the fixing up that this uh, old bucket of bolts did. Well, sure enough, we found it and we bought it. We made a non-contingent offer. Can you spell that? Yes. You can look it up on Google. A non-contingent offer is when you are not obligated to sell your existing house, you're going to move forward with this house, you know, no questions asked.
1: So the purchase of the new house was not contingent upon the sale of your existing house. Correct. Aha. now I get it. Devil's in the details, right? Yeah, absolutely. So now,
2: because I am supremely confident we are going to sell the old one. Tick tock on the clock. It's July of 2007 and we close on the new house and now we're you know going Mach five with our hair on fire on selling the old house, only something I don't know, what, what started to happen July. in August of 2007? Jeez, well, August I don't 2007.: I don't know. The bond market froze up, completely froze up, and it started the snowball. And the well, snowball was the avalanche and the avalanche. chilly? The avalanche is what turned into the, uh, the great financial crisis of 2008. So we found ourselves going in and out of contract five times. On selling. Five the house times on, on the selling sale. the house. Generally, a real estate professional would tell you one contract is enough. But we had five different people that we were either in or out of contract with for various reasons. And we owned two houses with big mortgages for 51 weeks. Ouch. That left the that left mark. That Ooh. left a lot more than a mark, that left a lot of scar tissue. And fast forward, we finally do sell the old house. And within a year of buying the new house, it dropped, oh, I don't know, 20, 25% market value. And it was stressful. I mean, I, can, I cannot in my lifetime think of a more stressful time, given the fact that we had mountains of debt, any cash reserves we had were long gone, my business was going in a 45-degree angle into the ground as a result of the financial crisis starting on September 14th, 2008, with Lehman Brothers, AIG, and Merrill Lynch all going BK. Oh, and oh, right. Sure. Don't forget this, kids. We had another baby four days later. We had Mr. Grant Gebhardt on September 18th. So at no time in my life, past, present, and hopefully God bless future, did I ever have more stress with kind of a sense of hopelessness around. I I have no way of knowing how to get out of this other than to put my head down and go to work.
1: Well, thank God you did. And
2: like you said, here we are over a decade later. And that's a, you know, that was a, a a very formative experience for me because it has shaped so much of the conversation that we have with clients around debt and houses and contingent versus non-contingent, particularly for those, Folks that don't have a lot of experience at this stuff.
1: Well, it's, it's and, happening again. It's happening again, right? Well, we've, let, let yeah, just because we've got, a,
2: we've, we've got a, a real estate market that makes the 07 market look like romper room.
1: Well, it, it's happening again. I mean, we just talking with a client of ours, a friend of ours who lives up in Truckee, up in Alpine Meadows, the number of people that are flocking from the Bay area because of this stay at home environment. Now I don't need to show up to work every day. I can do it virtually. People are scooping up houses again in locations like where I live, people where you live are, are purchasing up. And we're starting to see a lot of people with this idea of owning two homes at the same time. How would your decision have been different back then if you understood contingent versus non-contingent if if hindsight were your guide if you had somebody else who had experienced this before you that you trusted share their experience with you would that have possibly changed the decision you and beth made to do this non-contingent offer and carry two mortgages
2: undoubtedly sell sell the house that i've got now
1: whatever cash comes from that i'm able to use for the next one see that that to me is key Lucas, my, when he was 14, he's 17 now. And I've told you about this. When he was 14, he was doing some stuff that was scaring the bejesus out of Amy and me. I had a conversation with him about some of the behaviors that I shared similarly with him from my youth and the mistakes that I made and all the problems that it caused. And as a 14-year-old kid, he looked at me and said, you know, dad, I appreciate what you're sharing with me but there's only so many of your mistakes that I can learn from. I need to make my own. And I I, I was blown away by that. I thought that was incredibly mature for a 14 year old, but also incredibly naive. Because if there's one thing that you and I have learned over the years is that as we've grown older and we've slowed things down a little bit, we absolutely can learn from the mistakes of others and perhaps make different choices for ourselves going forward to avoid those mistakes and the pain of regret that comes with those mistakes. And well, that's our whole, it's our whole blind spot theory. It, it I is. is. I mean, it's it's, a,
2: it, it's incredibly mature of Lucas to have that perspective, but some of the mistakes you can make at that age are life altering. Yes. Yes. And I would argue that in the context of financial decisions, mortgages, houses, all of the things that go into the the house buying decision can also be life altering. And I, and I will tell you at that time in my life, it was life altering. I would lie awake at night very openly on this podcast. I would lie awake at night, hoping the good Lord would take me because I had a truckload of life insurance.
1: Yeah. Does that story sound familiar to anybody? Brother that's, I mean, the whole Genesis behind this podcast was to share with others some of the huge mistakes you and I have made in our lives as it relates to these three very complicated relationships every human being you and I have ever met has in their life. The relationship they have with money, the relationship they have with people, and the relationship they have with themselves. And we've discussed this from our own personal circumstances. Your mortgage mess that you and Beth got in, the damage that did to your relationship with money, had a trickle-down effect to the relationship within your marriage, with your children, with the people you work with, your clients, and most importantly, the last statement you just made, how you felt about yourself. The fact that you would lay there awake at night wishing the good Lord would take you. That's why we created this podcast, to help other people see these blind spots and potentially avoid making some of these very, very painful mistakes. Let
2: let alone the embarrassment of being a financial advisor. Right, right. We don't know anything about that. So yeah, so we too are human. We too have made plenty of mistakes. We've lived to tell about it. And now
1: I go to bed at night thanking the good Lord for not taking me. Well, fortunately, you and I have learned how to surround ourselves with some pretty incredible people. I'm incredibly grateful for the day I met you and all of the snowball effect that's happened since then, all the people that I've met since then. And one of the people that I've met since then is somebody who helped me with some of my own nightmares of mortgage mayhem. And his name's Brad Langle. He's our guest today in studio. Brad is absolutely one of the best in the world in the mortgage business. I met Brad when I was making some terrible decisions. I was coming out of a bad mortgage transaction that I had done up in the Pacific Northwest, moving here and looking to do it the right way. And Brad was that guy that really helped me understand the different types of mortgages that exist, the different ways that I can borrow other people's money or OPM as we like to call it. To be able to buy an appropriate house for my family, not overspend, not make bad decisions, and feel really good about the transaction. Brad is an absolute pro in the mortgage industry. We've we've been working together and we've become friends over a lot, a lot of years. And any time that I've ever had questions about the types of mortgages, the different boxes I need to check. Because again, I didn't get that class in high school about how to use my debt properly, how to use mortgage properly. So Brad, my friend, thank you for being Sir. here today with us.
0: Absolutely. Jim, you and I have heard each other's names over the years. Nice to finally put a face to the name. So it's great to, to see you guys both.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for being on the show today. The whole concept of, you know, we, we talk a lot about in our private practice and on the podcast, the value of relationship. And we, you know, we joke about, you know, the classes that we took in high school or college on personal finance. It comes to something like a mortgage, which is one of the biggest financial decisions you're ever going to make in your life. And that's a very overwhelming, scary transaction that is full of jargon. We love the fact that you're on the show today because we we want to start giving our listeners a bit of a base and a bit of an understanding on the mortgage process. And, and sure, you go through it a couple of times in your life or you go through a couple of refis and you can pretend like you slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night and know what the hell you're talking <laughs> about. Uh, but- what you do is is extraordinarily complex, and there's actually a lot of thought and consideration. What we talk about on the show all the time is be intentional with your money, right? And the mortgage concept, the mortgage strategy, is something that we really emphasize with our clients in terms of being intentional. Just don't fall out of the bed and do the thirty-year fixed mortgage because your dad drove an Oldsmobile. So, I'm I'm curious when you're working with clients right. to kind of kick off the conversation. How do, you, how do you encourage them to be thoughtful or intentional with, with the process and ultimately the product that you're going to recommend for them?
0: You know, that's, that's really a great question. And it's something that I think that not a lot of people in my industry start off with that conversation. Just before we got on here, I was talking to a client was working with a broker in the Bay Area as a first-time homebuyer, and nothing was explained from credit scores or why information is needed. It was just, how quickly can I get a rate out and get you out there shopping? And I think that really does a disservice to clients because they don't understand the process. Usually when you don't understand something, you're fearful of it. Maybe you have some pushback. And if you can just open it up and give some information to a borrower, they will start to understand why their situation is a little bit different. Lending has really transformed itself since I started in 2003, where, you know, back in 05, you could breathe on a mirror and they would give you a loan. It's completely full swing the other way now, where it's like, you know, going to get an IRS audit. Sometimes people are complex. The rules are very complex and What's happened is, from an underwriting standpoint, they have taken common sense out of the equation. Underwriters can only go off of what's given to them, and most people don't. There's an infinite number of ways to earn income. People's finances tend not to be uh, lined up, really organized, and so uh, the complexity, the frustrations come. Where how can I take what you know you are doing as an individual and? package it in a way that is acceptable for an underwriter. Because remember, ultimately, this all goes down to that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, right? The big packagers of mortgages are going to sell this as a bond. And so our individual finances have to meet the guidelines on the perspectives of what that bond looks like. So that's where we're, where we're trying to help people understand that's a big leap without an explanation.
1: So can I, I'm, I'm just going to slow this whole thing down for a second. So can I just summarize the essence of what you just shared with us, Brad, and thank you for that, is that the, probably the first bit of wisdom that you can impart on, on both Jim and me, because I'm, I'm sitting here as, as a participant today, really looking to learn even more about the mortgage business. I'm, I'm, just, I'm the eternal student. I'm sitting here wondering whether or not I should consider refinancing my mortgage right now. What it sounds like to me, and this is something I'm so grateful to you for, is that wisdom piece number one, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, learning about a mortgage is not necessarily a transaction. It's a relationship, meaning that somebody who's going into this shouldn't just be looking for information, but they should be looking to develop a relationship with an advisor who could not only spit out a whole bunch of facts and figures about mortgages, assuming that I'm going to understand everything you're saying to me, but someone who could actually analyze the needs of the human being, get to know the human being, and help steer them in the direction of what might be the most appropriate solution. Yeah, but come
2: on. We, we live in a world today where we're supposed to be able to do everything ourselves. Of course. Right? There's YouTube. So why can't I go on YouTube and watch a video on how to do a refi?
1: Well, you, and what
2: mortgage product is right for me?
1: You can, but you and I tend to march to the beat of a different drum.
2: Absolutely. And where I'm having fun with this <laughs> is in the concept of— don't treat it, ladies and gentlemen, as a transaction.
1: Treat it as a relationship.
2: There's so much complexity to this. What Brad was just describing in terms of the underwriting process, I've I've heard from different folks that it's now like 120 days to go through a, a, a potentially a refi. Brad,
0: it it, it can, it, it really can, depending on the the person.
2: So it's not the commodity that it used to be, right? When you and I first started in the wealth management business. <clears throat> A lot of people were you know, told that they can do this themselves. You don't need a financial professional. I was told that for many years with mortgages and refis and things like that, is that you don't need a mortgage professional. And yes, to your point, I think the, the big takeaway for listeners is develop a relationship with somebody that does this for a living. Brad, you're in this. Seven yeah. days a week, 365 for 17 years. I mean, 17, yeah. 18 years. Those are the kind of people I want to surround myself with. And if you don't have somebody like Brad on your team, you you want somebody like Brad on your team because this stuff is complicated.
0: It is. And, you know, we we as a mortgage industry, as mortgage brokers, we've been commoditized. There are now places where, you know, you can push a button and it's done. And I think that's so misleading to the borrower and what the process is really going to be like, really for two functions. One is there's a lot to it. I mean number two, like you uh, going back to what you had said, Jim, is that a 30-year fixed rate loan, the lowest rate is not necessarily the best loan for uh, everybody. There's so many different other considerations that go into it. And so when you people buy mattresses on a monthly payment, they don't find you know and they end up financing a mattress. And and when you commoditize the mortgage industry, uh, you kind of uh, most people are aligned to think that what they should be asking about is the rate, the rate, the rate. And I can give you a dozen, dozens of scenarios where the lowest rate doesn't make the the most sense. There's you know several layers of questions about how long you're going to be in the house, what do you want your payment to look like, you know a, a thousand things that would determine what the right financing vehicle is for an individual borrower. And so like going back to what you're saying, it's just to say, oh, well, I'll just do a quick little 30-year fixed rate loan. If you're a self-employed borrower right now and you own a coffee shop, do you know how hard your loan is going to be in the middle of COVID where you have to prove your income in a year where you are shut down for six months? That is not something that I would leave my potential home purchase for my family to deal with in a new home to someone who's just picking up the phone and giving me the lowest 30-year fixed rate loan, that's not the biggest question that you have to deal with. I mean, it's important, but, boy, to get to that point, there's a lot of steps to go through.
2: Wow. Right. Brad, Brad, you're reminding me of one of my favorite phrases, and that is, in the absence of value, price is the only consideration. And I think in, in your expertise, you could substitute the word price for rate. Yeah. Right? In the absence of value, rate is the only consideration. And there's there's, that's just fraught with, with error. That just, that just scares the bejesus out of me because yep. you're not, you're not being intentional with the largest financial transaction in your lifetime.
0: Those fast places, they work really, really well until they don't.
2: I love <laughs> you.
0: That is right? brilliant.
1: I've
2: never so heard you say that people, before.
0: Right. They do, you know, some of these big, they, they slam it through. And for a lot of people, they have really great experiences. For a lot of people, it's it's a black hole. So, you know, one of my analogies that I always use is, you know, you can go, to, you can shop around dentists. I say this because I'm not a fan of dentists. I don't like it. I have very sensitive teeth and it hurts like hell. So I don't go to the cheapest dentist in town. I could get a better rate, but uh, that doesn't sound like a good idea when you're sitting there in the chair and, you know, the dentist has bad teeth and there's no Novocaine and it's dirty you dirty tools. Now I'm thinking maybe I'll pay a little bit more. It is kind of like that.
1: That makes a ton of sense. I mean one one of one of the biggest mistakes Brad I ever made in mortgages happened before I met you. The very first home that Amy and I purchased up in Seattle, we were rate shopping and we were looking for the lowest possible cost loan we could possibly get when we bought this home in 1998. Cuz what would it what would that do for you? Well, it would just allow me to buy more house. Ah. I was able to get into the house of my dreams because I found these really cool things called adjustable rate mortgages. Cue
2: the heavenly music right there.
1: Yeah. And this mortgage guy showed me how through a five-year adjustable rate mortgage, I could lock in this payment that was less than what Amy and I were renting our apartment for that we were currently living in. And now I'm getting this gorgeous 3,500-square-foot house for you know mice nuts, for nothing. Now- what he didn't explain to me was what would happen to that payment in five years. Cue the Darth Vader music. Dun, 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 <laughs> dun, 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 Thank you. Know, I'm not in tune. But
2: I didn't ask you to sing it. I said, oh, cue the music.
1: It was disastrous. Now, we didn't get caught in an interest rate hike. What wound up happening was, first of all, this mortgage broker never asked me how long I was planning on living in this house. And this, at the time, was our forever house. But what, unbeknownst to me, the dot-com bubble brought was a forced relocation where we had to sell our house in Seattle, in the middle of the dot-com bubble, literally the secondary mecca of the pop of the bubble outside of Silicon Valley. That sounds like a lot of fun. And boy, did we get beat up doing that whole process. So I guess, Brad, my, my question to you is—and— and, and Maybe I'm, I'm I'm slowing this down even a little bit more and going back to some real basics here. Let's just talk about some of these very basic types of mortgages, because I, I don't want my story and my bad experience to necessarily darken or dampen a potentially useful tool— for a potential home buyer, so my my story doesn't necessarily insinuate that an ARM or an adjustable rate mortgage is a bad product.
2: No, no different per, than a baseball bat is either
1: you know good or bad, good depending or bad on depending on how it's used. How it's used, yeah. right? So I, I guess if you could just spend a few minutes sharing some examples of how you would help somebody figure out and understand whether one of these 30-year fixed mortgages, these 15-year fixed mortgages, or these things called adjustable rate mortgages, first of all, what is the difference between the two besides the obvious word in them? And then what would cause you to suggest one over the
0: other? All of those are just titles to a financing vehicle. It's it, it, the, the idea of a 30-year fixed rate loan is it's just that's how long it's going to ultimately take the loan to be paid off, right? But statistically, people buy, sell, or refinance every four to seven years. Wow. So I always try to get people just like, call it something else, but don't worry about interest that is probably not going to be paid in year 28. It's just not, it's statistically, it's unlikely to happen. So a 30-year fixed rate loan where you would take a $300,000 mortgage, they're going to slice it up into interest in principal for 360 even payments after 30 years. If you never move, never refinance, that loan would then be paid off. Same thing with the 15-year. Over 15 years, that's 180 months, exact same payment over 15 years, you will pay the whole loan off. However, that payment is going to be much higher. So a 15-year interest rate is going to be lower. The shorter the term of the loan, the lower the interest rate will be, but your int- your monthly payment is going to go much higher. And ARM, is stands for an adjustable rate mortgage. A, it is there is there is really no such thing as a variable mortgage, it's called an arm, an adjustable rate mortgage. So, they, to use your example, uh, uh, Matthew, you have a five one arm. What that means is it's still a 30 year loan. The first five years of the loan that's the five function are a fixed interest rate. So, the my rate can't year,
1: change those first it five can't years, change
0: for the first five years. After that five years, it will adjust once a month based on some economic indicators, which you have zero control over.
2: You haven't met so us, you have, us, have you?
0: What's that?
2: You haven't met, you haven't met me. I have oh, ultimate have you, control have over interest rates.
0: Oh, yes, yes. Everyone knows which, which way the, <laughs> with, where the market's going to go. So that's where people got into trouble. They bought a McMansion on that five-year loan and they had no way of handling a payment if it were to go up. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go up. I had a 5-1 arm, and because of economic conditions in 16, 17, and 18, the interest rate actually went lower, but you have to have that explained to someone. So, if someone's kind of maxing out right now, and most people tend to max out on their mortgage, if they are not aware of the potential in five years, then they could have a problem. So, To answer your second question, is is how do I, like, what's the best loan? Well, the the question is, what is the most important thing to you as a borrower? What are your plans? Are you going to, do you have this house that you want to look at refinancing and you're a state worker and you want to pay the house off before you retire and you're not moving, you're here? Well, then maybe a 15 year loan would work. But what happens if you are banking on your income and your reality today in a 15 year works? And then all of a sudden say something out of the blue, like a global pandemic happens (laughs) and you or your spouse loses your job, right? People don't, they only make a decision based on today, but let's, let's open it up. If, if you, your husband, let's say, were to lose their job, that 15 year loan now is a hardship for you. And the funny things about banks is they're willing to give you money when you don't need it. When you need the money, it's a lot tougher. So then I would say, okay, well, maybe you do a 30-year loan and you just prepay it like it's a 15-year, but you have the flexibility to back up and go lower on a monthly payment if you were into a hardship. Some people say, hey, I'm going to be in this house for five years and then my kids are going to move and I'm going to move to uh, Montana. Okay, well, then paying down the mortgage as fast as you can is, is, not, is, is pointless as far as I'm concerned. You're just trying to get from point A to point B. Accelerating that payment means that you're only going to pay yourself more back when you sell the house. So there's so many different questions about what's the anticipated goal? What do you feel comfortable with the monthly payment? What's your time frame in the house? That really helps me determine and counsel clients to help them make a, a better decision than just slamming a rate.
1: Brad, you just, you just absolutely said something that rattled my cage in a very positive way what you just shared is not not only trying to understand what the intention is but also taking into account that we're experiencing a transition this major global pandemic as a society unlike anything we've ever experienced and just by what you shared about gosh if if Amy and I were going to refinance and think about a 15 year versus a 30 year mortgage because this is our forever home one of the things to consider is for dealing with the unexpected is considering a 30year mortgage, even though we want to pay it off in 15 and just doubling my payments to treat it like a 15, but having that 30 as, as kind of like a risk hedge, like what we would talk about in our business. you know, hed- hedging our risk against uncertain unknown things, which I know you and I have talked about this. This is probably one of the challenging, most challenging parts about your job is being able to forecast, Potential unknowns and the implications that would play towards the type of mortgage we have, and it sounds like you just came up with a pretty darn good solution. Thank you for that.
0: You're you're welcome. I've seen uh, a fifth. I love fifteen-year loans, and I joke with my clients because it's going to mean it's going to mean two loans for me. You're going to do a fifteen-year loan, and in two years, life's going to change. Something's going to happen, <laughs> and you're going to need to do a thirty-year because you need to free up some cash flow. So let's just do it right the first time and do a fifteen-year. It's hard to get people to look down the path a little bit and understand that things can happen. So, you know, this pandemic has been the best analogy of the world and people really understand. You know, just so you know, brokers like me, they get paid on loan amounts. So the loan term or type has no bearing for people who are more interested in only earning a commission. So it's really okay to explore all these options with whoever people are working with. They, They should open it all up. I mean, you're asking to be diagnosed by a physician without having a checkup and the doctor, you know, taking your blood pressure and listening to your heart. Someone needs to ask these questions. Otherwise people, people make a lot of poor decisions and they pay a lot of costs in a loan that maybe they don't need to.
2: I'm really glad to hear that you take the time to identify what in our vernacular we call blind spots. So I, I have this belief that Whatever is going on in somebody's life they can only extrapolate out in that same direction. So if things are going in an upward trajectory, they can only really extrapolate and envision things going in an upward trajectory. Same applies in a downward trajectory, right? If something right. you know and I think that applies to markets, whether it be the stock market, the real estate market. Right. This thing's just gonna keep going up what, and it whatever, can't go down. Yeah, whatever direction we're going. And I like to do a little visual of where you draw a graph and you got a line going up at a 45 degree angle and you just go dot, dot, dot in the same trajectory upwards. Yeah. And to me, I think I think there are a tremendous amount of learning lessons from this pandemic. Your sure. profession, our profession, all kinds of professions. It, I mean, it's just, this is a reset in so many different ways, not just in terms of life and how we live it, but just from an educational perspective on on how to be prepared for different things happening in life. And, you know, in our world, we had a 35% correction in the market in three weeks in March, February Mm -hmm. to March, right? Rates have been all over the place in your world from whether it be a new home buyer or a refi or 15-year or products, I I guess, disappeared for a while because there was so much demand for them. They just kind of went away how do you, I mean, I, I find so much of the job that we do for clients is help setting expectations. So when you're working with somebody that, you know, doesn't have a lot of experience in mortgages and refis and the terminology of everything that goes into it, how do you, and and obviously you ask these great questions, but how do you help set the expectation for them of what comes from once we decide we're going to use this, this product, what happens next?
0: Well, I've, I've built my career. I'm pretty authentic and I'm pretty transparent. I'm not, I'm not the real flashy guy. I think i built my name and reputation on just giving it to people straight because I, I, want, I don't want to leave them astray. I will not issue a pre-approval letter until I am 100% confident that the loan's is going to go through So when I'm talking with clients, not only do I have some emails that reiterate what we've talked about, but I tell them up front. For a refinance, you're looking at sixty days, and this is what's going to happen. The next three days, you're going to get the loan disclosed. We're going to ask you for some updated documents, and then in three weeks, when the loan goes into underwriting, it's going to sit there for three weeks. Well, in my industry, we have to have everything updated within thirty days. So yes, I understand that you're a salary employee, but. Your pay stub is going to be outdated. So we're going to come back to you. We're going to ask for it again. I want to explain to you why, because a lot of people during COVID are losing their jobs. So we're going to have to verify your employment now like three times. And so I just have part of my conversation with a client after they've committed to work with us is let's just open this up. Let's set some expectations. This is what you can expect from my team. This is also what I expect from you so that we're on the same page. Let's just get it all out there. Um, I'm going to have you work with one of my team members and make a connection via email, and then we do touch points all along the way. There should really not be very much variation, but I try to tell everybody up front, if if you haven't done a loan in about a year and a half, what you know is different. Everything in the world is different. And so mortgages are not, are in the same boat. And so I explain it to them because you don't, you don't know, you only have your past experiences. And so I just tell people, Hey, this is what the reality is right now. And this is how we're going to get through it. I'm I'm your hired bulldog. I, I, you know, I try to envision that, you know, normally when you're meeting with somebody, you would be across the table. Well, I, I want them to feel that metaphorically I have turned and I'm sitting next to them on their side of the table, and I am helping them go through something which they don't have as much experience as I do, and I can help them out. So by just being really open forthright at the outset and looping everyone in, most of the the, the aggravation, what we call mortgage fatigue tends to go away because they they are, exactly what is happening is what I have told them is going to happen.
2: And there's nothing better than helping set an expectation for somebody and letting them know, here are you know you you've been down the road thousands of times, right? Yeah. You're the shepherd that knows the f- every rock in the field. So now you're going to escort somebody across that field, and you know you know where every rock is, and you can help explain to them what's coming, to alleviate the frustration.
1: Well, and so- something I'm taking from this is that. You know, obviously, not not everybody who's going to be listening in on the episode today is necessarily going to be working with you on, on their next refinance, sure. although that might all be our wish. What you've helped me with, and and I'm sure many others, is just setting an expectation that the process has changed. Right. One of the things you and I, Brad, are going to be talking about over the next couple of days, couple of weeks, is whether Amy and I should refinance the house again. And I know we just did this. When, when did we do it last? I think September or October. It wasn't, wasn't that yeah. long ago that we did a refinance, but I, I just want to Oh, announce- that was last year. It, was, it feels like years ago, right? It, was, it feels like 20, right. 2012, but it was just maybe six months ago. You've helped me set the expectation that every time we go through this process, the process has completely changed. I think last time we did it, I expressed some frustration to you about the number of times your team had to come back to me for information. No, and... you didn't You didn't express it to him. You expressed
2: it to me. Oh, I expressed nah. it to you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and what was amazing, I mean, this is my own self-centered thinking here, is I know you told me ahead of time this was going to happen, but I got stuck in the way it used to happen. So I, I appreciate this constant reminder of every time you go through this process with how quickly our world is changing, the process is also changing. And you're doing an incredible job of keeping us updated on that process. Now, with that said, I, I want to come back to one more technical question. Just to help me understand this more, you started explaining this a lot to me the last time we, we did refinance with you, and I remember we took your advice on this by paying down points. You, you talked about this idea of being able to lower the current rate we had by doing something called buying points. Now, I didn't fully understand what that meant. Thankfully, I trust you, and you let us down the right path. Could you please explain this to me like I'm a fifth grader? What does that sure. mean to buy down my rate with these things called points?
0: It's a great question, and it's something that a lot of people struggle with. Because, again, remember, people are so brainwashed on looking at what the rate is. That's all they know. So, but that's not the only question. You guys are experts in the financial industry and what it comes down to is not necessarily the rate, but what's the cost associated with it and how does that relate to what your time frame is for your goals of the house? So let me give you a, a very, very basic example and an analogy that will make it all fit right. So let's say you have a $300,000 loan and your interest rate is just, I'm giving you generic numbers, 3%. If you were to pay one point or 1% of the loan, that would be $3,000. 1% cost of the loan, and that's going to be different for everybody because their loan amounts are different, typically equates to about a quarter of a percent reduction in the interest rate. So easy math here, right? Three thousand dollars. Let's say the the change in the interest rate is fifty dollars. Uh, On a three hundred thousand dollar loan, you go from three percent to two point seven five percent. That would be fifty dollars uh, or sorry, it's gonna equate to a fifty dollar change or reduction in your monthly payment.
1: Okay, so the so rate, really the
0: so so if I
1: if I paid down one point. For $3,000, what you're telling me is that's going to reduce my rate by about a quarter of a percent. And, and yes. in doing so, that's going to save me 50 bucks a month in my mortgage payment.
0: Exactly. Okay. Okay. So okay. Let's keep go going. With that assumption. Keep okay. going. Okay. So, good. Well, what's the cost? $3,000 divided by $50 a month savings is 60 months. So that's five years. So how long are you going to be in the house? If you're gonna be in the house for 15 years, then it pencils out that $50 would save more money over the life of the loan. If you're not really sure, and you think maybe, I don't know what's gonna happen, probably four to five years, or you know you're gonna move, then why in the world would you pay the upfront cost? You're never gonna reap the benefits from it. So it doesn't make sense. Or if you only have a certain pot of money to use for a down payment, and you want to fix up the house a little bit, new carpet, new locks, new paint. Well, if you use the $3,000 for buying down the interest rate, where are you going to pull the money to fix up the house? God forbid, don't put it on a credit card. That's right. like 25%. Right. And it's not tax deductible. And and then the other question is, does $50 really even make a difference? Do you know where $50 is? That's two pints in a basket of fries, right? right? It's So does it make sense? So that's that's the the... The the steps we go financially to see whether it makes sense. I will tell you. I don't know if this is statistic is correct. Right, fifty percent of statistics are wrong, anyways. uh Statistically speaking, I thought but it was eighty
1: three percent of statistics are completely 83%? I don't know. That's what we were saying in the, before you showed up. Jim was telling me that eighty seven percent of statistics are made up. I always thought right. it was eighty three percent, and now we know that fifty percent of statistics are just wrong. We should so run for office. We should. This is right. good. This is good. Right. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah.
0: So does it really make a difference? The analogy that I use is it's like buying a car. So if you have a, let's say I have a Toyota Highlander right now, and it's one that we got used, but it's, it's got all the bells and whistles. Now I could have bought a less expensive car and paid less for it. It's the same car, four wheels, Toyota, you know, body engines, exactly the same, but my car costs a little bit more because it's perceived to be a little bit nicer. So if you go from 3% and there's a cost to get to a lower rate, it's just a nicer car. You're just making the choice to buy a little bit of a lower interest rate, which is kind of like buying a nicer car. Uh, what I was going to say about the statistics is most of the time, I would say at least 50 60% of the time that I go through this analysis, the client starts off with wanting the lowest rate and chooses not to buy down the points because financially it just doesn't always make sense. Gotcha. Um, but that's for the client to decide. It's not for the loan officer to decide. Give the client the information and let them make the the empower them to make the decision that's best for them. It's not for me to just presume that they want the lowest rate and end up charging them two points. You know how pissed off the clients are when they don't look at the paperwork until the very end and they want to know why they're coming out of pocket with an extra twelve grand. not a good. That's not a good way to. It's get, not a happy. Uh, that's not a happy
1: transaction. Ahead. Those are not no. surprises I enjoy. No, for sure. <laughs> no. So I've I've got I've got one more question for you. You you've been incredibly generous with your time today and, and and sharing your expertise. And this this may or may not be a comfortable question for you to answer. So I'm I'm gonna take a stab Ooh, at it. Ready? I like these. I've known you and your wife Tristan for a very, very long time. I'm curious to know the biggest mortgage mistake or any credit mistake you and Tristan made. Mm-hmm. And how that impacted you guys? I'm just, I'm just curious. I mean, I, because I know I'm, I'm a guy in the money business who's had a train wreck of a relationship with money, and I've been very open about it. I've shared that with my audience. And I, I'm always curious to hear how a pro gets to be as good as they are at their craft. Generally, it's because they've screwed up along the way. They've stepped in a couple piles of poo, and they've learned from it. What's the biggest mistake you guys ever made when it comes to debt?
0: Uh, with, as it relates to mortgages? Mortgages or any debt. The
1: juiciest story we can come up with.
0: Well, the juiciest one is that I let greed get in the way of proper decision-making. And I was sold a an insurance policy for, it was a, what was it called, premium financing, where basically it, it was a nightmare. It almost bankrupted me. And I did it because I was told I could have $10 million in the bank after 10 years and I didn't listen to the canaries in the coal mine. And it took me six months of my wife and I going back to all of our experience as being attorneys to essentially fight the insurance company and a outside private bank to not basically charge or, or stick, make a stick with the policy and then charge it a half a million dollars in a prepayment penalty. That was the most Substantial mistake I I did on that. In mortgages, I let a house in Arizona, a rental house, go to foreclosure. My ego got in the way. I didn't think the market was ever going to go back up. I didn't want to write a check to the bank to allow them to do a short sale. And it put me out of the purchase market for seven years because I had a foreclosure on my record. Both of those kind of taught me the same lesson. That there is no elevator to success or financial freedom. You have to take the stairs, buy and work with what you know. Don't be greedy. And because there's no fast way to do it, the way to do it is to work really hard, earn a lot of money, give it to some really talented advisors like yourself, and let the pros put it to work and then don't look at it for 30 years.
2: I really appreciate you sharing that story, Brad. I'm just, I'm reminded over and over and over again on the swings that we go through in life when it comes to either fear or greed. And that where we're in right now, there's obviously a tremendous amount of fear given all the pandemic. But when it comes to residential real estate and when it comes to the stock market- Yeah, it's both. Greed, well, I really feel as though greed's kind of taken over. Yeah. And I was having a conversation with a client on the way up here to the studio today on a stock that's gone 10X in a week. And I just, I had Gordon Gecko in my mind- With the whole greed is good. (laughs) And the way he says those words are just some of my favorite lines ever, right? It's just greed is good. And I just, I feel like that's where we're at. And thank you for sharing that story because it, it kind of shows both sides of the coin. The 08 mess, the pandemic we're going through. You and I were around in the, you know, in the internet bubble. We have so many lessons to draw from if if there's nothing that reminds me of the fact that it's the tortoise versus the hare that story Brad just nails it down for me and i'm constantly reminded that these these either get rich quick schemes that i, I can't avoid them on youtube i don't know what button i press that these things are now following target. me puts all over
1: the place target on your forehead
2: and it's like guys it doesn't work the world doesn't work that way sure it does and there and there's always going to be you know very colorful examples of people that made money very quickly in some obscure way.
1: But you're, you're absolutely right, Brad. You know, put your head down. Go to work. Put your work boots on. And surround yourself with an incredible team of advisors that you trust to help you protect that wealth you create. Bingo. Whether, whether it's real estate wealth, stock market wealth, whatever it is, surround yourself with pros. Brad, really grateful for your time today. Share with us, I'm I'm sure that this conversation is bringing up a lot of questions. I know you and I are gonna be having some follow-up conversation Mm -hmm. after this. Give Mm -hmm. us some ways to get in touch with you for when we have more follow-up questions.
0: Awesome. Well, the two easiest ways would either be a phone or you can uh, go onto my website and learn about me. So uh, my office number is uh, 916-932-932. 0257. And myself or someone on my team will pick it up. And then my website, just to get more information is your So that's your Y-O-U-R NorCal And it's got a wealth of information and videos and information and classes I've taught. Any question anyone has, whether I'm working with you or not, I'm happy to help out any way I can.
2: Is there any charge for a consultation or a phone call or anything like that?
0: No, I have chosen many, many years ago after someone at the start of me joining the business uh, industry chose not to share anything with me. I have decided not to be like that. So I am an open book. There's no charge. I'm here to be the purveyor of really good information so people make solid financial decisions. There's there's no charge for the information.
1: Thank you for being a resource to the financial sobriety community, brother. We're, we're grateful for you. Thanks for being right, on right. the team. You guys are great. See you soon, Brad, Thanks, Brad.
2: Hey, take care, partner. Thanks for bringing him on the show. That was, that, that was, was awesome. really, yeah, that was really helpful. The, the, my, my huge takeaway, and this is just, this is something at a core level. That's really important to me is I love the concept of team. Oh, team. And I love, I love just every day my feet hit the ground. I just, I, I greatly appreciate the sense of relationship that I have with people and a guy like Brad is somebody I want on my team life is complex let alone against the backdrop of 2020 and all the heartache and sadness and tragedy and struggle and emotional roller coaster that we are all going through we got to take hats off and I and I mean that in the sense of and we've talked about this on the podcast doing less why do we have this addiction to having to do everything ourselves and not rely on a pro like Brad or somebody that you may already have on your team. So thank you so much for bringing him into the call today, because those are the people I want to surround myself with. Sure. I'm not a pro at mortgages. He is. And what's the right structure based on where I am in my life and what we're looking to accomplish, how long we're gonna be in the house, all those questions that he that he asks a, a prospective client. I mean, oh, yeah, that's you, invaluable.
1: The relationship I've had with Brad now goes back to when I first purchased my home here in Rockland in 2004. Where where are we now? I, I lost track of time. Is it like March something, 2020, or are we in 2021 yet? I don't know. It's been a long time I, since I really I know don't Brad. know. Yeah, I've lost track of yeah. time completely. When I first met Brad and he helped me with the initial transaction, I mean, this is the value of this relationship. When Amy and I bought the house we were in, this was not our intended forever house. And Brad recognized that. I came into the transaction with this belief that we needed to pay this house off. We needed to get a 30-year mortgage, keep the interest as low as we possibly could. And then Brad opened my eyes up to the idea of an adjustable rate, shorter term mortgage And he helped me use it appropriately because those were the facts that we knew to be true at the time. Seven years into living in the house, we decided we wanted to make it our forever home. And thank God I had this relationship with Brad because at the time he was able to guide me on, well, now that this is going to be your forever home, we should probably make some improvements to the home. We should probably restructure your mortgage a little bit. And there's a way that we could build a mortgage around being able to do all of this without getting yourselves deeper into any kind of financial hole and actually improve your overall the goes ins and goes outs, as you and I like to talk about. Yeah. So just having him on my team for 16 or 17 years, as life has changed for Amy and me, he's been there to help guide me to make the best possible decision as it relates to my mortgage and my home, based on the facts as we know them to be true today. And should
2: that that shift again, you'll be there. You've got a relationship in place to be able to help guide you on, okay, well, this is how we should do it now. Because, hey, let's face it, life changes and in this day and age, life can change dramatically quickly. So having having somebody like Brad on your team is wonderful. If you don't have a mortgage advisor of some kind, ask around, ask your folks, your family, your your boss, your colleague, your neighbors, who do they work with and who who have they worked with? Hopefully for a long time. time through a number of transactions. Yeah. Because, right, a, a singular transaction is one thing. But when you have a relationship with somebody that can ride the waves up and down, that's really
1: the name of the game. Well, and a little secret I'll share. There ain't nothing online that I'm able to do myself. Sure, it might save me a couple of bucks along the way, but there's nothing as valuable as that relationship that I've created knowing that I can pick up the phone as my life changes and get the help that I need. You've always said it to me. You think it's expensive to hire a professional? Wait till you see what it costs to try to go at it alone or hire an amateur. Amen. And I think with that, we're going to call this episode a wrap. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt.
3: to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.